The Metropolitan Opera Guild is the premier arts education organization dedicated to enriching the lives of children and adults through the magic and artistry of opera. To learn more about the Guild's many exciting programs and events, please visit metguild.org. everyone and welcome to the Metropolitan Opera Guild podcast. I'm your host Naomi Baratera and the goal of our podcast is to share knowledge and insights into the operatic art form, drawing our content from a variety of different educational programming that we have going on here at Lincoln Center in New York City. This week we are happy to present our third and final installment of Memories from the Golden Horseshoe. As many of you know, this series is presented by Met Radio commentator Ira Siff, in which he regales us with memories and important performances from the final years of the old Met Opera House that closed when the current Met Opera House opened in Lincoln Center, an event that happened exactly 50 years ago this season. So with one last look at the old Met, here is Ira Siff. morning. Uh, I'm sorry that today is the last of our installments too because of course there's a lot that you never get to cover when you do this kind of thing. Today um, we're going to begin with someone who was one of the constant presences during uh, that time of the last five years of the old Met, Cesare Siepi. Last week we watched Roberta Peters and Robert Merrill and by the way today is Roberta's 86th birthday and that reminded me of a chat that I had had with Roberta at one point when she said to me, Ira, I was simply madly in love with Cesare until I discovered that everyone else was too. (laughs) Siepi came to the Met for uh, Rudolph Bing's inaugural season for that famous 1950 Don Carlo uh, Bing had wanted the dynamic uh, Bulgarian-based Boris Pistov, or Kristov, excuse me, and um, <laughs> he ended up pissed off because they didn't have him. What happened was the McCarran Act uh, came into effect. It was the early days of the McCarthy era, and he was Bulgarian, and although he lived in Rome and he was married to Tito Gobi's sister, he wasn't allowed a visa to come into the country. and. Uh, Bing was really, really desperate, but he had to refuse Christoph, who did indeed become pissed off, and uh, refused to ever sing at the Met after that, even after the McCarran Act was lifted. So Bing found this 27-year-old bass to play the aged King Philip in Don Carlo, Cesare Siepi. And he remained principal bass at the Met until 1974, when the administration that came in after Bing uh, failed to offer him the first ever Met Vespri Siciliani. And so, well, Siepi became pissed off too. And he left never to return as well. I guess this is a, a tendency with Basso's. Um, he was an extraordinary looking singer, and his suave good looks and his suave legato, uh, he was a natural for Don Giovanni, which he sang at the Met a record 91 times. Mephistopheles in Faust, he sang 62 times, and he was ubiquitous in The Marriage of Figaro as Figaro, 79 performances. He was a very serious performer, and not, not a really a detailed interpreter the way we have, let's say, today in, in uh, Ferruccio Furlanetto, but he, he relied more on his physical and vocal beauty and artistic integrity. 
Uh, he could cut up with onstage pranks that were either expected or not in the uh, Barber of Seville when he played Basilio uh, 45 times at the Met. He played Philip and Don Carlo for 35 performances, and he was very much identified with this role at that time. It was difficult for me to choose which version of the many to play of Sieppi singing Philip's magnificent monologue, El La Jamai Mamo. Um, there's a magnificent studio version under Van Karajan. There's a video from 1970 in which you can see his stunning good looks and hear his beautiful voice, but he does almost nothing with the aria. It's in a concert version. But I found this old black and white, also out of the context of the opera, um, of Sieppi during that time uh, with this typical beauty of tone, unsurpassed legato, seriousness of purpose. Uh, unfortunately, it begins after the gorgeous prelude of Verdi for the, the aria, but we get to see him sing the entire aria and listen to this dark, rich bass voice of unsurpassed beauty.
vivid Strauss memories comes from the old Met when Elizabeth Schwarzkopf came uh, and made a kind of belated debut as the marshal. And uh, in those years, we kind of felt, as I've mentioned, that people sort of owned roles. Tibaldi was Mimi, Sutherland was Lucia, Nilsson, Turandot, Scotto, Butterfly, Callas, Tosca, and Norma. Schwarzkopf was the marshal. Schwarzkopf was only at the Met one season and then one performance the following season, but the impression was everlasting. Her beauty, her sound, her incredibly mannered and analytical performing, which at the moment always felt somewhat spontaneous actually, uh, was something that one never forgets. And we're going to watch a brief excerpt from her unforgettable portrayal from that time, from a a uh, black and white British TV program filmed at that time, the very end, <clears throat> excuse me, of Act One, a moment performed beautifully by many people as the Marshallin looks into the mirror to contemplate her aging. But with Schwarzkopf, it was a special kind of mesmerizing, not to mention the long, long pianissimo. You'll hear that she floats uh, right before she looks in the mirror, which in the old Met just seemed to uh, be suspended and to suspend time. This and her entrance in Act Three, where she looked 
dazzling in an elaborate gown and a purple velvet cape are my two most indelible memories of Schwarzkopf and among really any that I have uh, of, the, of the old Met. So here's the very end of Act One of uh, De Rosenkavalier with Elizabeth Schwarzkopf as the Marshallin. While uh, Met audiences found it uh, easy to warm to the nostalgia of De Rosenkavalier despite its wordiness and its length, and they found it uh, easy to be intrigued by the lurid shock value of Zalame and to get through the dissonance of Electra, distracted by the powerful vocal roles, the vivid story of guilt, obsession, and revenge, it took Strauss's final collaboration with his great librettist Hugo von Hofmannsthal. 22 years to arrive at the Met, Arabella bowed in 1955 with a great cast headed by Eleanor Stieber and George London. The opera presented then in English translation to help the audiences uh, deal with the, the psychology of the story uh, has always been more difficult for audiences, especially years later when it was sung at the Met in German before the advent of the titles. Uh, <clears throat> and, but it is, it's really an incredible piece with a very witty and very moving libretto. In 57, the opera returned, still in English, to the Met, but with a new leading lady, and she was known as the most beautiful woman on the opera stage at that time, the Swiss soprano Lisa Della Casa. Della Casa had a sort of reserve to her performing that lent a feeling of intimacy uh, she had a silvery, slender voice which rode the, the crests of Strauss's lines with fluidity. I saw her in this role as well as in De Rosenkavalier. I saw her as Octavian opposite Schwarzkopf's Marschallin. Uh, and then I saw her as the Marschallin opposite Rosalind Elias's Octavian. Uh, as Arabella, the cool, collected young woman uh, fending off suitors, her parents hope that she will... Uh, marry one of to extricate them from the deep well of debt that they're in. She's waiting for the right man, de Richtiger, as the libretto says. And Della Casa was so right herself, it was, again, not even a portrayal. She just was Arabella. In 1960, Della Casa was joined by the debutante Anneliese Rotenberger as Zdenka, Arabella's younger sister. Uh, in a revival of Arabella, because her parents are so deep in debt, Zdenka is forced to dress as a boy called Zdenko because they can't afford to bring another daughter out in Viennese society. Rottenberger went on to other roles at the Met, uh, including her most enchanting and vocally delicious Sophie in De Rosenkavalier with Schwarzkopf and Della Casa. Uh, those were the days. 
we're now going to watch Delacasa and Rautenberger in Abba der Richtige, which is Arabella's aria that morphs into a duet for the two sisters, in which Arabella tells Denka that if there is a right man for her, he will appear suddenly, there will be no questions, no doubts, and she will no longer be evasive, but rather as obedient as a child. Zdenka, who has thought her older sister somewhat cold, succumbs to the message, and so do we, through the incredible beauty of Strauss's music for the two female voices and through the incredible beauty of Delacasa. So this is Lisa Delacasa and Anneliese Rottenberger here in the original German version of the aria that turns into duet from Arabella.
amazing the way they effortlessly pour out those Strauss lines. And he always puts the high note when you're almost out of breath. So kind. Um, another memorable debut and the eventual successor to C.A.P. came in 1965 with the Bulgarian bass Nikolai Gyaurov. In 61, Gyaurov first shared the stage with Mirella Freni, another 1965 debutante we'll be hearing from. And in uh, 78, the two of them married, based themselves in Freni's hometown in Modena, and remained devoted and performed often together uh, from that time until Gyarov's death in 2004. Gyarov was commanding presence with a commanding vocal endowment. It was rich in color, generous in volume, with a secure upper register. His Met debut was as Mephistopheles in Faust, and we're going to hear him in both of Mephistopheles' arias recorded live in 1966, just after his uh, Met debut.
anymore. <laughs> when uh, Mirella Franey, his wife, not yet then, uh, made her Met debut in September of 1965, she was actually at that time married to the pianist and conductor Leone Maggera. She had begun a successful career quite young with the debut at 19 as Michaela, and by the time of her Met debut at 30, She'd made a number of major international debuts and had starred in Franco Zeffirelli's film of La Boheme. It was her lovely portrayal of Mimi, her sumptuous lyric voice, that she brought to her first appearances at the Met. Same season, she also brought uh, her Adina in Elisir d'Amori, and she had been directed by Zeffirelli previously in that one as well. Uh, the public fell madly in love with her. So did Herald Tribune critic Alan Rich, who called her irresistible, praising her intelligence, her femininity, her grace, and her seamless instrument. The first season, she made a huge impression, uh, but then she continued at the Met for a while. She sang Juliette opposite Corelli's um, Romeo in very odd French, but beautifully sung. And uh, she then disappeared. There was a hiatus for tax reasons, and she was gone for a long time, between 68 and 83, when she returned in astonishingly fresh voice. She continued for another 22 years. Franey had some late career triumphs also that were a surprise. She married Garov. She took up Russian roles. She sang Tatiana in Onegin, Lisa in Peak Dom, with great success. And she took up some Verismo pot boilers like Fedora and Adriana Le Couvreur and brought a new intensity to her portrayals. Franey sang at the Met until 2005 when she celebrated her 50th anniversary of her debut and her 40th anniversary of her Met debut in a gala at age 70, still sounding marvelous. She was never an artist who took risks with her voice. She gave fully to the roles she sang. She never sang roles that she felt were too heavy, uh, saved them for the recording studio. We're going to sample some of Franey's Irresistible Mimi today alongside her co-debutante, Gianni Raimondi, who also made his debut that same evening, September 29th, 1965. And this is Mimi's death scene from Act Four of La Boheme.
a debut event of, of great excitement came when Grace Bumbry took the house by storm at age 28 with her fiery eboli in Don Carlo. Bumbry was preceded by a certain amount of hype. Uh, she was the first black Venus, in fact, the first black singer at the Holy Shrine of Bayreuth, and already a recording artist. Bumbry also knew how to be a diva, making the most of her alluring figure, her bold temperament. Even uh, when a kid like me went backstage to uh, get an autographed picture, she would remind you of how much those pictures cost her. <laughs> uh, transitioning in later years to soprano and then back and forth between mezzo and soprano, she alternated Zalame Tosca and the Trovatore Leonora with Amneris, Eboli, and Carmen. She was a uh, great Zalame. She was the first Met Bess in Porgy and Bess. Uh, before she came to the Met, right before she came to the Met, she appeared as Eboli in Chicago. And I remember uh, people on the standing room line who had the enormous budget to travel to faraway exotic places like Chicago <laughs> talking about what a fantastic uh, voice and stage presence she was. We're going to hear Eboli's great aria, Odon Fatale, recorded in Chicago right before uh, Bumbry's Met debut in the role. This is 1964, and uh, it reminds me when I listen to it of standing all the way up in the family circle, standing room, listening to that sound up there and her thrilling energy at her Met uh, debut, which I was at. This is Odam Fatale, Grace Bumbry. <laughs>
that was recorded, obviously, at Chicago Lyric from the audience. Uh, at a time when the house was rich with tenors, Corelli, Tucker, Raimondi, Vickers, Geda, one tenor made a place for himself based on the aristocratic vocal manner he had and an instrument of incredible beauty. Carlo Bergonzi's three-decade tenure at the house was distinguished by a standard of vocal beauty and elegant phrasing unique to this artist. Bergonzi represented a kind of vocal suavity and elegance that seemed to emanate from another time. His was an artistry of passionate refinement, of poetry through the word, but also the vocal color and beauty with which he offered it. He had a rare combination in his ability to excite the less informed with his passionate delivery and vocal beauty, while transporting those more in the know with the elegance of his phrasing and vocal shading. I first heard Bergonzi as Ernani in the old house, and after being surprised that his voice was not quite as big as London Records made it sound, I was taken with his vocal beauty, and I suddenly gleaned what poetic phrasing in Verdi meant, what it could be. Soon after, I heard him opposite uh, Lainting Price in Aida, and at the end of that most treacherous of tenor entrance arias, Celeste Aida, Bergonzi floated the high B-flat, fading it away to a morendo, just as Verdi marked it, morire, meaning to die, to die away. It was sheer magic, and oh, so risky. Bergonzi's voice was built upward from a firmly grounded foundation that retained its burnished luster and smooth projection throughout its range, and anchored solidity that perhaps owed something to the fact that his early training was as a baritone. Indeed, Bergonzi made his, uh, his debut with, uh, in 1947 uh, in singing, singing classic baritone roles like Figaro in Barbieri di Siviglia, Belcore in Donizetti's Elisir d'Amore. It was an idly vocalized high C in the dressing room one evening that convinced him that he'd been on the wrong track. So he self-taught himself the tenor range, and he quickly emerged, uh, re-emerged, really, and made his second debut as Andrea Chenier in Barry uh, in January 12th of 1951, and he never looked back. Bergonzi made his Met debut as Rodimus in 56, and was the Met's first Macduff in the first Met Macbeth in 1959. Rodimus remained one of his great roles. Bergonzi's stage deportment left a great deal to be desired. When I reviewed his performance of Rodimus on a DVD from the uh, Verona Arena recorded in 1967, I said that Bergonzi looked like an accountant dressed up as an Egyptian for Halloween. <laughs> Although his stage appearance was never alluring, he was quite aware of this, and he always said humbly that he tried to make up for it with his singing, and make up for it he did. Bergonzi was perfectly matched with two artists, in my opinion. One was Renata Scotto, who uh, once confided in me that while she felt she got nothing back from Carlo as an actor, they could make poetry together as singers. The other was Lantine Price. While Bergonzi's economy of gesture was pretty extreme, he did everything with the voice, and so did Leontine. Leontine had two onstage gestures, this one, and this one. <laughs> but her voice said everything. So we're going to listen to this 1963 Met broadcast performance of the final duet from Aida Oterra Dio with Bergonzi and Price, and it is simply divine. 
another uh, Bergonzi specialty, which remained in his Met repertoire for decades, was Verdi's elegant King Gustavo in Un Ballo in Maschera. The character's aristocratic position suited the tenor's aristocratic approach to his roles. His voice was nimble and playful when Gustavo disguises himself as a sailor to investigate the fortune teller Ulrika. And then it's passionate and soaring in his love scene in the fantastic duet with Amelia, the wife of his best friend and most loyal supporter. We're going to watch uh, Bergonzi singing Gustavo's aria as he plans to put his love for Amelia aside and send her and her husband Renato away in order to avoid further temptation. Bergonzi's legato was a miracle. The next to last in a line of great Italian tenors, the last I think being Pavarotti, who by the way worshipped Bergonzi. Interestingly, actually, in uh, Maestro Levine's 25th anniversary concert, 1996, uh, Luciano woke up and found himself voiceless. He was sick, and he had to be replaced at the last moment. So uh, he was replaced by Bergonzi, who at age 72 subbed for him. At that point, the voice was a little bit worn, the top sometimes veered south, but the beauty of the middle voice and the poetry of phrase remained absolutely intact. Here is Bergonzi in his prime in Ballo in Maschera, 1967. <laughs>
uh, legato is based on even emission of breath, that's legato. Lesson in, in uh, really in bel canto singing in Verdi. By the way, I didn't realize that big hair extended to men in the, the 60s as well. <laughs> that bouffant wig is really something special. I guess he wanted to be taller. Okay, so um, thank you all very much. See you next year, I hope. Thank you so much for listening to episode 42 of the Metropolitan Opera Guild podcast. With many upcoming celebrations of the opening of the current Met Opera House 50 years ago, it's nice to take a look back at what came before. I hope you enjoyed listening to these memories of the Golden Horseshoe, and I look forward to being back with you next week. I'm your host, Naomi Baratera, and thank you for listening.